Our passage this morning is in Luke's Gospel. We're in chapter 17 this morning. We're going to talk about the chapter, the entire chapter, that is, this morning. But most of what we're interested in is in verses 11 through 19. And just for fun, to pick up Jesus' stated parable, not just the acted parable, but the parable that he speaks, we'll go all the way through the end of the chapter and the parable that we're particularly interested in is in the last verse of the chapter. Young Christians, young theologians, last week Jesus called us a name that wasn't very nice. Do you remember what it was? Camels. He called us camels. This morning he calls himself a name that's not very nice. Now it's his turn. See if you agree with what he calls himself. Why does he call himself this? And does it fit? And parents, what you should know is that often in the Bible... We don't like the metaphors used because we want the entire word picture to apply. That's not how metaphors are used. There's one aspect of the word image given that's being applied to the reference. So keep that in mind as Jesus says something about himself that is sure to make you squirm. This is the good news of Jesus. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village... He was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here, but do not go out or follow them. As the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the day of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Pray with me. 
odd statements from your lips to your disciples, Lord Jesus, but this is the gospel for strangers, wandering strangers, those prone to leave and abandon you and look for salvation someplace else. And so we pray that you will gather us around the good news as odd and mysterious as it may be to our ears and our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you will draw us to yourself and give to us life. And for all of this, we will give you thanks. We ask it in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? If you're paying attention to the sayings of Jesus at all, you should find them shocking because that's how he means for you to find them. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the 32nd president, grew tired of the small talk that he encountered at White House functions. And so, for fun, he would try to shock his guests as they came through the presidential receiving line. He would lean in and whisper to them, I murdered my grandmother this morning. Most of them would smile and nod politely and say nothing back, which only supported his hypothesis that nobody was paying attention to anything he said. Until one night, there was a reception at the White House, and one guest at this event was coming through the receiving line, and the president played his old trick. He leaned in and said, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And the guest leaned in and said, well, sir, I'm sure she had it coming. Most of us don't want to hear what Jesus has to say because it's shocking. And the shocking sayings of Jesus are designed to match his shocking coming into the world. That God should enter his creation as part of his creation through the birth of Jesus the Son in Galilee. That wasn't a routine action. It wasn't expected by the people at all. It's an invasion. It's a rescue operation. And what makes it so shocking is that we would never have dreamed that we needed rescuing. And Luke 17, from start to finish, is full of our need to be rescued. Jesus starts in the first group of verses by saying, Scandals, offenses, temptations, seductions into sin, invitations to come join me at my sin. They're bound to happen. They're sure to come, Jesus says. But if you make yourself a scandal by turning one of these little ones, one of these needy ones, away from the scandal of my death, finding strength in my weakness, if you make yourself that kind of scandal, well, it would be better for you to have an engine block tied around your neck and thrown from the end of a pier hunched over from holding the weight of my engine block, waiting to feel a shove between my shoulder blades. I know I need to be rescued. And if your brother sins against you, forgive him in his repentance up to seven times in a day, Jesus says in the next group of verses. Seven times in a day. That's a bad day. I don't have forgiveness that looks anything like that. And the worst part of it is, I'm the one who actually needs that kind of forgiveness. 
today, tomorrow, every day, seven times a day. And I need to be rescued. And then the apostles feel this same lack and need in themselves. So they say to him, Oh, Jesus, increase our faith, which you would think was a spiritual request. But they're actually asking Jesus to help them turn their faith into works. And so Jesus runs the other direction. He moves hard in opposition to them. And he says to them, You don't need faith the size of an elephant. You need faith the size of a mustard seed. A tiny grain, just enough to make you desperate and urgent in your needs and your cries. That's what faith feels like. We don't even ask for the right things. We desperately need to be rescued. And then Jesus tells the stinging parable of the unworthy servant. And with this parable, he's showing us that we want to get the upper hand in our relationship with him. That we keep trying to ply Jesus for rewards with our obedience. And that was never the way this relationship was established for us. And so Jesus says, what do you think? Do you think that a servant labors in a field 12 hours during the day and then comes into the house at the end of it and he pulls up a chair at the table and eats supper with the master so the master can slap him on the back and say, you are the best servant I have ever had. I don't know what I would do without you. There's no servant in the world you know of like that. After laboring in the field 12 hours, the servant comes into the house, rattles the pots and the pans, fixes supper, serves the family, and then goes upstairs to turn down all the beds. He's just doing his job. It's not your faith or your obedience that impress me, Jesus says. What impresses me is my love for you. What's missing is my love. You've forgotten my love. And that's the rescue we need. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the chapter, there's no more talk about rescue. Jesus just shows it. Jesus is ramping up for his final approach to Jerusalem. And we all know what will happen there. He'll suffer and die at the Passover and as the Passover. Mr. Rescue himself has finally come to town. And so there are all these little staging events and parables along the way to get us ready for what's coming. And passing between Samaria and Galilee, off in the distance, there's a line of ghosts. Figures shuffling along, wrapped head to foot in rags and strips of dirty bedsheets with clanking bells dangling from their necks and their belts to warn away other travelers. And what they're supposed to do, if anyone else comes near, is to yell out, Unclean! Unclean! And the other travelers would give them wide berth. Because they're lepers. Leprosy was a rotting of the skin. is a rotting of the skin. A premature decomposition of the body while you're still living in it. Leprosy is what sin would look like if you could wear it on the outside. A falling apart, an unraveling. And 
It's a rot not just with the power to consume you entirely, but it's a rot with the power to jump to another carrier. It's got the power to spread. And sin is an awful lot like that. It's infectious. I feel like when I'm at my worst in my sin, I should wrap myself in gauze and hang dull tin bells from myself and yell out, unclean, to keep others away. Because my sin can jump to you and sink you in my decay. You might think that that's a little over-interpretive, but leprosy as a condition was ceremonially unclean in Judaism, meaning it was a picture of the sin that needed to be removed by God's holiness. And if you carried in your body the uncleanness of leprosy, you couldn't participate in worship gatherings. You were shut out. And because it was so highly infectious and incurable, you couldn't participate in society if you were a leper. You were an outcast sentenced to live in a colony with other lepers in a society of uncleanness. To rabbis, the cure of leprosy was as difficult as raising the dead. It was a supernatural activity. And so if the cure of lepers was seen to be going on in the surrounding regions, it was to be a sure sign that finally the Messiah had come. And who knows what this group of lepers thought? Who knows if they believed that it was actually Jesus, the Messiah, they were addressing? Or if they were just responding to all the rumors that they had heard along the way. That there was this man, Jesus, a great itinerant preacher and healer. And maybe, maybe he could do something for them too. Because if anybody needs rescuing, it's a leper. And if you're a leper, if you're one of the walking dead, anything's worth a shot. So we don't know what exactly they believed about Jesus. But they called out to him, not with the usual warning. Unclean, unclean, keep back. This time they called out to him, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And Jesus calls back to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, the priest would confirm that a leper had been cleansed. Notice how Jesus heals them. He doesn't touch them in this case. There was another story of the cleansing of a leper, and Jesus touched him. And he doesn't pronounce healing over them. He determines that they're healed. He wills them to be healed. And he tells them to go off to the health inspector for a checkup as if a healing had already taken place. And presumably, they have some kind of faith because the whole gray, clanging line of them shifts directions and they shuffle off to Jerusalem to clear the streets as they make their way to the temple looking for a priest to give them a clean bill of health. Luke, the gospel writer, is a physician by trade and he writes that as they went, they were cleansed. Step after step, lesions and sores closed up and ashen, fraying skin was knit back together and colored in. It would be thrilling to know at what point on their march they realized that they'd been healed, but Luke doesn't give us that. What he gives us instead is the return of one leper out of the ten. 
He's just a, a dot on the shimmering horizon at first as he turns back to find Jesus again. He starts running down the road and his joints are stiff and jagged at first because it's been a long time since he's worked himself up into a run. But he picks up speed and his lungs are burning and choking for breath and begging the rest of his body to stop. But his heart needs his feet and his arms to pump harder and faster. I imagine Jesus and the disciples standing silent and watching him come out of the desert. Like that scene from Lawrence of Arabia where Omar Sharif rides up to Peter O'Toole. He's just a blur at first, gaining definition frame by frame the closer he gets. The scene in the film takes a minute and 30 seconds to unfold. There's no background music to fill in the gaps. It's just patience. Finally, Sharif dismounts his camel and pulls the scarf away from his mouth. And finally, the leper reaches Jesus and yanks the wrappings off his head and falls at Jesus' feet. What's the difference between this leper and the remaining nine? Thankfulness. That's what we've been taught to say. This one was thankful. The other nine weren't. Oh, come on. You really believe that? You think the other nine, even though they never went back to Jesus, they weren't thankful? They were lepers. They were made clean. Now, it's not thankfulness. There's something else going on here. This, this passage is about being dead and knowing it. At this point in the story, Luke opts to tell us this man wasn't just a leper. He was a Samaritan too. So he's unclean in his skin. He's unclean in his body. And he's unclean in his blood as far as the Jewish mindset is concerned. He's unclean in his condition and unclean in his ethnic condition as well, in his heritage. Remember, Samaritans were Jews who went to the northern frontier and they traded their Judaism away by intermarriage with the neighboring and polluting peoples. So so this man is a dirty, unsavable thing. He's twice dead. Whatever dead was, this man was dead squared. And yet Jesus reached into his death anyway. So falling at the feet of Jesus, he was rejoicing as a dead thing made alive, brought to life in the love of Jesus. But the important feature here is he never pretended he wasn't dead. The other nine lepers, however, we never hear from them again. They slide into the untold stories between the chapters of Scripture, like slipping away into the crowds, like sliding back into society. They could leave the past entirely behind. They could pretend that they were never dead to begin with. Standing over the hors d'oeuvres at a cocktail party, meeting the other parents at meet the teacher night. What would a former leper do? Reach out a hand in introduction and explain, you know, I once was a diseased outcast, but I'm better now. He'd be left standing there with no one to grasp his hand in return. And so the nine 
were so overjoyed with their future that they deny their past altogether. And that's not how the gospel works. That might sound like faith to you, but that isn't the gospel. The gospel is, if you're going to say it in its fullness, the gospel is, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Once I was blind, but now I see. Once I was dead, now I live. Out of my deadness, I live in Christ. In the gospel, you never have to deny any part of your story. And if you try to ignore your pain and your hurt and the loss and fallout of your own sin even, then when love appears, it loses its bite. It's like turning wine into water. But in the gospel, devastation is turned into delight. And when Jesus enters your story to redeem it, it's like sulfur water turning to sweet wine mid-swig. If you deny the darkest chapters of your life written for you to suffer through, then you also take away the brightest chapters of the love of Jesus, which He's writing into your life by grace. Then there's the end of the chapter, a discussion of the kingdom of God. And the Pharisees asked Jesus, So, Jesus, when does this kingdom come? Jesus answers that the kingdom is already in their midst because he's in their midst. So, don't chase fads. Don't, Don't follow when somebody says, The kingdom of God is over here. The kingdom of God is over there. They don't know what they're talking about. At the end of all things... When I come back in the fullness of the kingdom, I'll fill up the sky like a flash of lightning. You won't miss it. And you shouldn't miss me now, but in the meantime, the kingdom is much quieter among you. But it's here. It's here in the gospel I have brought, just like it existed and was present for Noah when he was building the ark trusting in the salvation of the Lord, waiting for the skies to open up, just like it existed for Lot in the unholy city. The gospel of the kingdom is small and quiet and overlooked and dismissed, but it's here. And when it comes in its fullest fullness, it'll be an all-out surprise. Two will be in one bed, and the one alive in my gospel won't be there anymore. Two will be grinding grain, and the one alive by my gospel will suddenly be gone. So the disciples get into the conversation now. Where, Lord, where does this happen? The Pharisees ask him when. They want to challenge his notion of the kingdom. They're the ones left out, by the way. And the disciples want to be sure to be included, so they ask him Where can we put ourselves to be certain we won't miss all of this? And Jesus gives them a parable of comfort that sounds more like it comes from the Brothers Grimm. Where the corpses, the vultures will gather. The vulture knows how to find the corpse. That's a real downer, Jesus. That'll bring any church meeting to an abrupt end. Where is the kingdom, they ask, out of genuine interest and desire, at least the disciples do. And Jesus' answer feels like a slap across the face. The vulture knows how to sniff out death. 
but it's actually a kiss on the mouth. I've seen a lot of vultures this summer with their oversized cloaks of feathers, their hunched shoulders, their bald heads. They're like undertakers with wings. They lurk like dark omens. I was with two friends a couple weekends back, and we were riding in a Jeep, and we were checking a fence line on a south pasture, trying to figure out how calves on the ranch were getting loose of the pasture, getting free. We were looking for the hole in the fence, and as we rumbled through the pasture, I looked up and saw a circling funeral procession. The vultures had come out. Because a season of drought is a buffet for a flesh picker. There's no grass for vermin to hide in. There's no water for larger animals to sip strength from. It's only a matter of time. As the scales tip, the misfortunes of some creatures become the plenty of others. So we rolled along the fence line and I watched the grim circle turn in the sky above us. And I wondered, where's the death? It's close, but I can't see it. And we found it. We drove through a wall of stench. We came up over a hill and as we crested it, on the bottom side, on the back side of the hill, a heifer had fallen over dead with her hollow sockets and her lolling tongue and her dry hide stretched over her frame of bones cooking in the sun. And Jesus was right. The vulture finds the corpse. But what does he mean? And how can it possibly be good news? What could this possibly say about the kingdom of God? The kingdom of his love? It leaves us shaking our heads, but it would have set the leper to dancing and laughing and singing hymns. It means... Jesus will find you where you're dead. You are the corpse and he is the vulture and he will find you. You won't miss his kingdom. If you're dead and you need his kingdom, he will find you. His kingdom of love and grace and redemption comes precisely in the place where you need it the most. Not in the place where you are strongest and at your most vibrant, at your most lively, full of yourself, but where you're empty and sallow and too far gone to be any good. It'll come to you where you're dead. That's the gospel. Jesus loves us at our lowest. In our leprous falling apart, our uncleanness, our untouchableness, our outcastness, where no one in their right mind would come near In our little seed-sized faith, not much more than a desperate kernel clinging to belief, gasping for air just to go on one more hour, one more day. In our selfish servanthood, scraping for rewards that aren't even there. In our seven times a day habitual need for forgiveness. With the millstone of our scandal and unbelief pulling us by our necks, all the way to the bottom to leave us there, that's where his love feels like love. He comes to you where you're dead because that's where it feels like he loves you. I hear it all the time. 
I know Jesus loves me. It makes a certain logical sense to say that Jesus loves me, but I don't feel it. Where can I feel it? In the place where you feel most dead. Because that's where he stretched himself out to embrace you with the comfort of a cross that knows your embarrassment and your shame and your failure to the full measure of it and he refuses to turn away from you. And the place where you're dead is where he opens his unsealable heart to you like a tomb that can never be closed on you again. In the place where you're dead in your hope. In the place where you're dead in your expectations. Dead in your dreams. In the place where you're dead in your sorrows. You're dead in your emotions and your feelings. Dead in your fears. In the place where you're dead in a relationship. Dead in your strength. Dead in your ability to turn yourself, to turn your life around. Dead in your self-confidence. You're dead in the way you wanted to believe yourself to be, but that's not who you really are. Dead in your faith and belief. Dead in your capacity to love or be loved. Dead in trust. That's where you'll experience the wonder of the love of Jesus Because the love of Jesus shows up in our need like dawn breaking the night. Like spring breaking the long months of winter. Like rain breaking the drought. And all this makes evangelism incredibly simple and beautiful. You want to be an evangelist? Not, not a nervous, sweaty, guilty one the way most of us are. Not a used car salesperson hawking salvation. But you, want, you want to be a natural evangelist? One who believes every word of the good news as it falls from your mouth. You savor every word of it as, as it drips off your tongue. You want to be that kind of evangelist, a natural evangelist who enjoys it and delights in it, exalts in it. Just find a corpse, a ghost figure shuffling along and walking death, singing a private dirge. Keep away, you wouldn't want to come near to me. You don't even have to be eloquent or long-winded about it. Just remember the promise of the holy vulture himself and whisper to your corpse, Jesus loves dead things. And make it a habit. Make it your refrain. Late one night last week, I was blinking at the television, waiting for my eyelids to go heavy and dark. And I tripped across a documentary on the rebuilding of Ground Zero in New York City. It was airing this week as we approached the 10th anniversary of 9-11. What to build and how to build on the site has been a contentious process, a controversial subject. But the project is underway. A tower will be built there, the Freedom Tower, a transportation hub. A memorial museum commemorating the event and its aftermath. And and a freestanding memorial, uh, a reflecting pool with the names of the victims engraved in the base. 
the documentary, the film crew interviewed people who lived in the neighboring blocks immediate to the area. They talked about the horrors of all that unfolded. And the, the film crew interviewed first responders and politicians. But the interview that shook me awake was the conversation with the architect and the designer of the project. He said, we have to build something in this space that embraces the tragedy. can't pretend it didn't happen. We have to build something here that embraces the tragedy and rises out of it. We can't get stuck in the tragedy either. And he didn't mean it this way. But you hear it the way I hear it. That's the gospel. Jennifer asked me, do you think it's a good idea if they build on the site? I mean, doesn't it just invite the same thing to happen again? And that was the question that I wrestled with watching the documentary. But it was the architect who shook me to belief. I think they should build on the site. And if it happens again, they should build on it all over again. But you can't leave the story half told. Our tragedies of heart and soul and living can't go unacknowledged or unanswered. And when Jesus finds you in the wreckage, the rubble, the twisted metal, the dust of your sin and your pain and your loss, that's where His cross and His resurrection are most meaningful and most beautiful. And that's where the love of Jesus isn't just some muttered chorus in a song or an unfelt answer to a catechism question. It's like taking a deep breath in an airless vacuum. And when Jesus finds you at your ground zero and your story broken and jagged like a bone, bruised, deep purple, A story that can't just resolve itself. So Jesus wades into your story to finish it in himself. When Jesus comes into your story like that, you finally have a story worth telling. And you also have a gospel worth proclaiming. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that's how you walk into our lives, Lord Jesus, just like that. Not leaving our devastation unacknowledged nor unanswered. But you come into the stories that we can't resolve on our own and you finish them in your love and your fullness. And now show us how all of this is true. There are some of us here this morning who are desperate for all of these things to be true. We have been trying to put on a face of strength, but it hasn't done anything to turn our hearts, and it hasn't done anything to allow us to rejoice in the Savior. It's all been a sham. Now what we need is for Jesus to find us in our death, to fill up our need with his saving love. Thank you for the the ways you make us desperate. 
because in our desperation we find you sufficient. And now we get to eat and drink the same things. We get to come to the table foul and filthy with our sin and unrepentance and we get to be washed and made clean. We get to come starving because we've gorged ourselves on all the wrong things week after week and we get to be filled with grace and mercy again. We get to come naked and unclothed and pitiable to be covered by righteousness and the love of the Savior. Uh, Help us not to brush past our need too quickly. Where we are dead, that's where we feel you to be most alive. So, allow us to eat and drink. Desperate. For just one more glimpse, one more sense that Jesus is our all in all. And now, church, along with the church in every age, what is it that you say you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.